Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 633. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is still fine and dandy. Yes, we are, as you know, into this now fortnightly for Starship Sova, just until we get over this kind of COVID-19 mess that's going on in the world, and it's just kind of knocking our publications, so we're just kind of hanging in there, so... Please, this is honestly, this is from from the heart. If you can still support it, and then I know that you know there's been we've had quite a few pull out, and it's understandably, you know what I mean. You're not getting your wages. You're getting the eighty percent here in the UK if you've been furloughed, but we still kind of need to keep going. So listen, big if you can support it. You know, what I mean? come back to Patreon, support one Patreon. We've got to pay last the beginning of this month and it was just way down and it's just like oh why why do we bother man so if you could that would be honestly from the heart big please that would be fantastic so now because we're all kind of mixed up i'll give you a heads up what's coming today's show we've got an original from alexis ames which is called like a bird from the sky and we've also got this is the beginning of the month how mixed up is this we've got mr jj campanella from the beginning or the end of last month's show we should have had we're going to play jim's science news now so that's all coming today's show i do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it so, like I say, the, the main fiction is Alexi Ames' story, Like a Bird from the Sky, which is an original to Starship Sova. Alexis is a writer living in Colorado who first picked up a pen when she was 11 years old and hasn't put it down since. Science fiction is a preferred genre, it's more specifically exploring the change in relationships between humans and technology. Her work has previously appeared in publications such as Pseudopod, Cayante Press and New Accelerator. And you can find it on Twitter and at our blog as well. And there's two links to Alexis' place where you can find her. Now, this story is narrated by Rish Outfield, who is a writer, voice actor and audiobook narrator. He can be heard co-hosting the June Steve Audio Fiction magazine and That Gets My Good podcast, where he and Big Al Yankovic... <laughs> that's a way of saying it. Entertainingly wastes as much time as possible. He also features in his own stories on the Rish Outcast podcast. He once got a job because of his Sean Connery impersonation, but he lost too due to his Samuel L. Jackson impression. So, 
The Starship Suva is very proud to present Like a Bird from the Sky by Alexis Ames Narrated by Rish Outfield 1 March 1918 The men who came to prepare Richard for the firing squad were silent as they went about their duties. They stripped his uniform of rank and insignia, leaving him only in plain trousers and jacket, and bound his wrists together. They let him keep both pairs of thick wool socks that he wore inside his boots, which seemed absurd. He was going to be dead in twenty minutes. What difference did it make whether he was cold or not? Frosty dawn was breaking, the sun stretching weak beams of light across the frozen pastures, and he could only think, I'll never see this again. Then his nostrils were full of the filth of the trenches, his mind's eye reminding him of seeing a man's face blown clear off and spattering his uniform with blood and brain matter, and he thought, Good. He was to be shot in the courtyard of the abandoned farmhouse, whose tall brick-and-mortar walls would protect against curious villagers and ricocheting bullets. He stepped out into the chill, flanked on either side and behind by his comrades. Their feet crunched across the solid ground as they marched him solemnly to the spot where he would die. Another absurd thought. He knew precisely when, where, and how he was going to his death. Not many people in the world were afforded that luxury. But the men led him past the courtyard, taking him up a handful of rotting steps to the porch, and then he was led into the farmhouse. A wave of warmth washed over him, the air tinged with wood smoke. Someone had built up a fire in the grate in the study, probably the first one the house had seen in years, and a still steaming cup of tea sat abandoned on the desk. One of the men near him said, Wait here, which was an easy enough order to follow with his hands bound and nowhere to go. If his options were being gunned down in the back as he fled across a frozen field, or stoically as he faced the firing squad, he'd choose the latter. The door behind him opened. The man who entered the study lowered himself gradually into the seat behind the desk, as though every bit of him ached down to the bone. Bald and whippet-thin, with deep lines around his mouth and severe eyes, he was visibly ill. But Richard wouldn't have exactly said that he was frail. There was a quiet intensity to him that belied a determined strength underneath, though in places that strength was threadbare and disintegrating. Only then did recognition kick Richard swiftly in the gut. It was different seeing someone in living color, when you had only ever glimpsed their unsmiling visage in a photograph. "'Lieutenant Hamilton,' the man greeted, the American accent startling, even though Richard had expected it. "'Well, not lieutenant any more, I suppose. Unfortunate business, that. Do you know who I am?' "'Everyone knows who you are,' Richard said. He felt a little faint and couldn't help wondering if he might be hallucinating. He'd been a child when the first airplane flew, but even then, 
The faces of the men who had accomplished it had been splashed across every newspaper and seared into his brain. I... I read that you were dead. Near enough, anyway. Wilbur Wright did look wretched. His face so pale the skin was nearly translucent. It's easier to carry out my work when everyone believes me to be dead. It's been particularly difficult on my brother, but that can't be helped. His voice sounded as exhausted as the rest of him. He picked up a folder on the desk and flipped through it. Richard caught sight of his picture and realized it was his service file. Desertion. Only a coward would leave his post, they tell me. Wright's eyes, so dark they were almost black, lifted to hold his own. Are you a coward, Mr. Hamilton? No. The military says you are. You're set to die for it this morning. Yes, that was my understanding as well, Mr. Wright. Any drier and his voice could have been the Sahara. Wright came around the desk. He was shorter than Richard by a handful of inches, enough that Richard had to look down at him, he was standing so close. Wright peered at him for a long, unnerving moment. No, I don't suppose you are one. Good. Wright lifted his chin, the better to meet Richard's gaze. Tell me what you think about space, Mr. Hamilton. Richard stared at him. Pardon? Space, that great void you see in the sky at night? Wright said impatiently. What do you think is out there? Nothing that concerns me. Wright's lips twitched. I see. So the sunlight that sustains the plants and animals you eat, that warms your days and disappears to give us the stars at night, none of that is of any concern to you, because of course it doesn't affect you at all. What is your point? My point is that the war is going badly. We need an advantage. We need a miracle. Something that's going to make the enemy think twice about continuing it. I've been on loan, I suppose you could say, to the Royal Flying Corps these past several years. My orders are to end this war, whatever it takes. And now I believe I've found a way. I, I don't follow. That's where you're going, Mr. Hamilton. Space. The void beyond the horizon. I've built a ship, and you're going to fly it for me. Am I? Yes. You expect me to believe that you've taken a plane, a rocket, to be more precise. Now it's a ship. A space ship. Richard was certain now that he was hallucinating. Either that or having a particularly ridiculous dream. You want to end the war by sending me into space. Well, it seems like there's very little left for you here. You have two options, Mr. Hamilton. Accept this mission 
or die in... Wright checked his watch. Approximately fourteen minutes. What exactly would you have me do in space? Go out for a nice stroll? Richard heard his voice start to skitter up the scale toward hysteria. He drew a deep breath and said, as evenly as he could manage, How am I supposed to even get up there in the first place? It's a simple journey, Wright said. The rocket practically flies itself. She just needs someone at the controls to monitor things and make course adjustments as needed. Now I'm told you're a quick study and a damn good pilot. Pity they'll never put you in a cockpit again. Richard's jaw tightened, but he didn't rise to the obvious bait. Wright waited a moment before continuing. The route has been programmed into the rocket's difference engine already. We've let it leak, very carefully, that our side has a new piece of technology that could bomb Germany clear off the face of the earth, so the Germans will be watching for something like this. Once you make this flight and they realize we have reached this frontier, it will be horrendously demoralizing for them. Wright's face took on a pained look. Think of all the damage that could be wrought from space. We could wipe the entirety of Europe off the map if we wanted to. Now, hopefully, the threat of that alone will be enough to bring about an end to this war within the year. Wright rubbed his forehead along the lines permanently etched into his skin. It had better, at any rate. I'd rather not resort to actually bombing Europe to kingdom come. So that's it, Richard demanded. Strap myself in a rocket, go into space, and then return to Earth to be put in front of the firing squad again. Provided you survive, no. Oh, on paper, yes, you'll die today. Wright waved his hand. We've got it all written up. The death certificate has already been signed by your execution's presiding medical officer. When you return, you'll be free to live whatever kind of life you wish to invent for yourself. Richard's chest tightened. Provided I survive. Wright lifted one shoulder in a shrug. It's a dangerous mission. Nothing of the like has ever been attempted before. We have no idea if the launch will be successful. If it is, we don't know if the landing will work, should you make it that far in one piece. That's why it was decided that you would make the best candidate, a condemned man with no family left back home and with nothing left to lose by accepting. He paused and then added quietly, This is the only way you'll ever fly again, Mr. Hamilton. Why me? As I said, a condemned man, why me? There was a profound pause. You didn't desert. Wright's eyes bore into him. Richard felt as though he was being peeled apart and examined, layer by layer. You aren't a coward. What does that have to do with it? I see that a lieutenant 
Thomas was formerly charged with indecency the same day you were arrested for desertion. Richard said nothing, carefully keeping his face blank. I wouldn't know about that, I'm afraid. His file says his plane was shot down a week later. He bailed out. Yes, I hear that he'll never fight again. Thank, Thank the Lord, Richard thought, even though Andrew lost a leg due to the bad landing. Anything that kept Andrew from the front lines, he could accept. He's been sent back to England to recuperate? I imagine so, Richard said. Andrew had managed only one letter to him since waking up in hospital. Heavily censored, of course. But Richard was adept at reading between the lines. He kept it tucked in his breast pocket. Today, it was a heavy weight against his heart. Wright said nothing to that. He handed Richard a file and said, Read these. Memorize them. All your instructions are in there. When you're finished, destroy them. Somebody will be by shortly to escort you to a secure location. We launch in a week. He hesitated for a moment, then said quietly, There are places you could go. After, I mean. Places where people look the other way when it comes to matters of indecency. I've relocated to France myself. Lovely country. The silence stretched, but Richard couldn't think of a thing to say. Finally, he gave a tight nod. Good luck, Mr. Hamilton. Godspeed. 11 November, 1918 Alone in his rented rooms above the bookseller on the corner, Wilbur poured two fingers of whiskey in a crystal glass that had a tiny chip on one side of the rim. The chair creaked as he settled his meager weight back into it. Next to him, the radio crackled and popped between words. Not that it was particularly difficult to follow the President's address. Armistice. Peace. Amiens and Albert had been devastating but decisive battles. Though the German troops on the ground had been completely unaware of Richard Hamilton's extraordinary feat, the high command had clearly been rattled by the mysterious rocket that could reach the cosmos and presumably rain destruction down upon them all. It had been a death knell for their side. Wilbur was old, and there was an ache in his joints that never truly went away. But still something akin to excitement flared behind his sternum as he heard the floorboard settling outside his closed door, the turn of a key in the lock, and then the creak as the hinges swung open. Benjamin's hair was more silver now than black, but he had flourished these past several years, while Wilbur faded his skin a healthy brown from the sun, the old injury to his knee paining him less here than it had in America. He shrugged out of his jacket and waistcoat before rolling up his sleeves and cuffing them at the elbows. He unbuttoned the top two buttons of his shirt 
and sighed, free at last of the stiff confines of his workday clothes. He poured himself a drink and touched the rim of his glass to Wilbur's. To Wilbur Wright, he said, his quiet baritone rumbling through Wilbur's chest, who showed humans how to fly and put a man in space, single-handedly bringing about an end to the greatest war known to humanity. Yes, well, they'll only ever know about the first. Wilbur took a long swallow of his drink. It burned all the way down, and then started to numb him from the inside. I suppose it's difficult to credit a man for ending a war that started two years after his death. Wilbur's mouth quirked. No, I mean that no one will ever know space flight is even possible. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, humanity can only take to the sky, not beyond it. Benjamin's brow furrowed. What does that mean? It means that I've destroyed it. Destroyed what? Everything. All the plans, the research, the blueprints. The rocket itself had been ditched off the coast of Portugal. He imagined it would give future archaeologists conniptions, should they ever find it. We'll have to move again, of course. The RFC knows this address. I'm sorry. He had no way of knowing whether Richard had survived the flight or not. But through unofficial channels, he learned that one Lieutenant Andrew Thomas had taken his compensation from the Royal Flying Corps and quietly relocated to Bordeaux. Most days, Wilbur hoped they were living out a peaceful life in the French countryside. Other times... In his darkest moments, he hoped that Richard had died upon impact. He had cursed Richard, after all, with the same affliction that ailed him. They had both tasted the sweetness of flight and would never have it again. They were birds plucked from the sky. The war's over. Surely they wouldn't come after you, Benjamin said. Wilbur didn't even bother to answer him, and he sighed. They will. You're right, of course. They'll come after you once they realize the secret to spaceflight only exists in your mind now. I won't allow anyone to discover that this happened, Wilbur said. And if somehow Mr. Hamilton survived, no one will believe his tale. A man going into space. Madness. Wilbur, is it truly such a bad thing for people to know? Benjamin ventured, one last weak protest. We aren't ready for it, Wilbur said firmly. Benjamin, the world has been locked in a bloody conflict for four years. Thousands dead an entire generation of men lost. How could we possibly consider adding a new frontier to this mess? Next we'll be fighting over the moon, Mars, 
No, I won't be the architect of that next war. No one would know it was you. I would know, Wilbur said sharply. However much time I have left, I'd like to spend it being able to look myself in the mirror each day. They stared at each other for a beat. Finally, Benjamin dipped his head in acquiescence. He perched on the arm of the chair so that Wilbur's forearm lay against his warm thigh. You're a good man, he murmured. You know that? No, Wilbur said. I only ever wanted to fly. And there you go. Big thank you to Alexis. Alexis, that was just lovely. Thank you. And it's an original Starship's over. That just makes it all the more sweeter. And Rish, how are you doing, lad? Look after yourself, you know what I mean, over there all the way. Just, you know, take care and wash your hands and two metres. Yes. So, like I say, it is now the beginning of the month, but it should have been the end of last month. Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and three rarial hedemifications, my somnolent listeners. Welcome to this April 2020 Science News Update. I'm your host for this naively Pollyannic podcast, Jim Campanella. I made a resolution, ladies and germs, and yes, I'm using germs in the most ironic way possible. In the coming weeks, as long as I can continue to provide you with this little monthly tidbit, I will no longer be mentioning anything at all about the present health crisis. I decided this all on the basis of the relative percentage of news that is devoted at all levels about the health crisis. I'm here to entertain, educate, amuse. I ain't here to pander. I am not here to scare. At the moment, we are getting little happy news, whether that be in relation to science or not. I intend this to be perhaps not the happiest segment on the Internet, but at least one where you do not have to hear about the same stuff that you hear about everywhere else. I was listening to the BBC News the other day, and it horrified me that I was actually pleased to hear a story about a war somewhere. That is how totally invasive, pervasive reports about the present crisis have become. If you could be pleased to hear about anything other than the pandemic, even a war in Africa, that just is getting to the point of being bloody scary. So this is now a pandemic-free zone. Idiot scientists? Hey, sure, why not? They're always out there. The Journal of the Scientist reported last week on this story written by Catherine Offord. Prominent geneticist Dr. Constantine Stratakis has said he will not take up the position of executive director and chief scientific officer of the Research Institute of McGill University Health Center in Montreal. After allegations of gender discrimination during his previous job came to light in a science news article on April 2nd, Stratakis has, for the last 10 years, directed the Division of Intramural Science at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, I assume that's Canada, and has been the subject of eight, eight 
equal employment opportunity complaints against him since 2013. Oops. A McGill University spokesman said, quote, The board of directors of the Research Institute of McGill University Health Center acknowledged today Dr. Constantine Stratakis's decision to withdraw from his research institute and associated appointments at the Research Institute at McGill University. Dr. Stratakis, who was scheduled to take up his responsibilities on June 1st, 2020, confirmed the circumstances beyond his and his family's control forced him to reconsider their future, unquote. Science reported that researchers at the National Institute spoke of the low number of women running labs during Stratakis's tenure there. Between 2011, when Stratakis became the permanent scientific director, and 2020, the percentage of labs run by women fell from 27% to 23%, both lower than the proportions of other leading children's research hospitals, which ranged between 30 to 47%. Again, oops. The article related accounts of disrespectful and demeaning behavior toward women in the division by Stratakis. Of the eight complaints brought against him, since 2013, three were dropped, lost, or dismissed, three were settled, and the remaining two are ongoing. Dr. Lynette Neiman of the National Institute told Science, quote, Constantine Stratakis does not value the diversity, perspective, and contributions that women bring to the table as physicians and scientists. That has shown in his actions and how he treats women and his poor record in enhancing the diversity of the Institute, unquote. Stratakis told Science in a response, quote, The National Institute Intramural Program is highly supportive of women. Nine of the division's ten clinical investigators who don't run labs are women. He then went on to state that some of his best friends are women. Yes, that was a joke. Dr. Aaron Wolf, another researcher who filed an equal employment opportunity complaint against Stratakis, tells Science this week in a follow-up article that she is happy about the news Stratakis won't be taking the new job. She told Science, I'm pleased that his withdrawal will not give him a fresh opportunity to stifle the careers of women scientists and scientists who do women's health research, unquote. Given that we've been talking about women, why not do the first story, and that's going to be about women. Why do women live longer than men? I guess that's about women. All right, it's about women and men, fine. I could make some smart Alex statement about why women live longer than men, but that would just get me in trouble. New research published last month in Biology Letters suggests that having two copies of the same chromosome, the X, in the case of humans, may offer protection and lead to a longer lifespan. Differences in lifespan between sexes have been observed in many different species, though not always in the same direction. In mammals, females tend to outlive males, while in birds, the opposite seems to be true. Although a popular theory has labeled risky male behavior as the cause in humans, new research has suggested it may have to do more with our sex chromosomes. Dr. Zoe Zirakostis from the University of South Wales tested something called the unguarded X hypothesis. That concept suggests that the reduced or absent sex chromosome, the Y chromosome in mammals, and the W chromosome in birds, 
fails to protect an individual from deleterious mutations on the other sex chromosome, in the case of humans, the X. The hypothesis has been around for years, but no one has ever actually tested whether it's true. Zeracostas' study is the first to put the hypothesis to a test, significantly expanding the phylogenetic span of species examined by compiling and analyzing female and male longevity for 229 species across 99 families, 38 orders, and 8 classes on the Tree of Life. Zeracosta says, quote, We looked at lifespan data in not just primates and other mammals and birds, but reptiles, fish, amphibians, arachnids, cockroaches, grasshoppers, beetles, butterflies, and moths, among others, unquote. Her analysis revealed that across a broad range of species, the homogametic sex lives, on an average, 17.6% longer than the heterogametic sex. So let me explain. Homogametic means that the sex has the same two chromosomes. So in humans, XX is homogametic. Heterogametic means that you have two different chromosomes, sex chromosomes. So in humans, XY is the heterogametic sex. So this discovery does provide support for the unguarded X hypothesis. The researchers also identified substantial differences in the lifespan dimorphism between female heterogametic species and male heterogametic species. So in species where females have two of the same sex chromosomes, for example, humans and all mammals, females live on an average 20.9% longer than males. However, in species where the male has two sex chromosomes, for example, birds and butterflies and moths, the males outlive the females by only 7%. This finding suggests that while sex chromosomes may play a role, there seems to be something else fundamentally life-shortening about being male. And again, I can say something really snarky here, but that which is getting me in hot water. Zeracostas finishes with, quote, I was only expecting to see a pattern of the homogametic sex, XX or ZZ, living longer. So it came as an interesting surprise to see that the type of sex determination system XXXY or ZZZW could also play a role in an organism's longevity. Unquote. By the way, ZZZW is what you see in birds. Male birds are ZZ, female birds ZW. Zeracostas suggests that increased degradation of the Y chromosome or the protective value of estrogen or risky male behavior during sexual selection could be responsible for this trend. Now, here's a thought, Dr. Zeracostas, and it may seem like a really stupid idea, but it occurred to me you may want to look at the lifespans of male to female or female to male transsexuals, humans. Even though they no longer make high levels of their birth hormones, they still have their original sex chromosomes. If it is true that high levels of estrogen are protective, then male to female transsexuals may live longer on average, and female to male transsexuals 
may lose years of life along with their estrogen. It's a thought. Although her study provides the first evidence to support the unguarded X hypothesis, the results only suggest more studies are probably needed. And you think that this stuff is kind of silly, but it's important for understanding the mechanism of longevity. I mean, it may lead us to a much better understanding of aging and treatment of aging. We're not looking for immortality drugs here, but anything that will help people survive to an older age in a more healthy state will be really great. Next up, a lens the size of the sun. What? What does that mean? I'll tell you. A couple of weeks ago, NASA's Innovative Advanced Concept at IAC program announced that they will spend the next year developing space mission concepts that sound like they were plucked straight from a Starship Sofa story. Among this year's NIAC grants is an eye-popping concept headed by Dr. Slava Turashev, a physicist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who wants to photograph an exoplanet by using the sun as a giant camera lens. If that isn't the proposal for an awesome story, I don't know what is. Now, remember, exoplanets are light years away. We can't even get a decent photo of Pluto without traveling there. But this bunch thinks that they can see an exoplanet? Now, the idea is based on a century-old theory, first suggested by Einstein, who calculated the star's gravity could cause light from another star to bend around it, effectively creating a giant lens. If you were to stand at the focal region where the bent light converges, the solar gravitational lens would significantly magnify whatever was behind it. Einstein's theory about gravitational lensing, well, it's now well known and it's been shown to be absolutely true. And in fact, observational cosmologists regularly use the gravitational lensing from galaxies and galaxy clusters to study more distant objects. Turashev's plan would take advantage of this effect by sending a rocket with a telescope attached on a 60 billion mile journey to the sun's focal region to photograph a habitable earth-like exoplanet that might be well up they say up to 100 light years away turashev calculates that sending a telescope just one-third the size of the hubble space telescope to the sun's focal region could produce a megapixel quality image of an exoplanet after a few years of snapping photos if the targeted exoplanet is about the size of Earth, each pixel would cover about 35 square kilometers. Turashev says that would be better resolution than the famous Earthrise photo taken by Apollo 8 astronauts, and more than enough definition to make out surface features and signs of life on the exoplanet's surface. Now, I'm not a physicist, but really, why don't I have much confidence in this? All right, trying to justify all the work involved, Turashev says, quote, The primary motivation for everyone contributing to this project is to move the idea from science fiction to reality so that the current generation of people living on this planet can enjoy images of an alien world. Are we alone? Is a question we all ask, and we may be able to answer that within our lifetime, unquote. 
It's been pointed out by other NASA scientists that cool as this would be, the technological challenges involved are staggering. First, consider the distance. We're talking 60 billion miles. That's 16 times farther from the sun than Pluto, ladies and gentlemen. If you're traveling at the speed of light, it would take three days to get there. Three days, three light days. That is not exactly close. Voyager 1, which has ventured farther into interstellar space than any other human-made object, has only traveled 13 billion. Now, think about that. It's taken it 40 years to get 13 billion miles. So when Turashev says, within our lifetime, he is not talking about my lifetime here, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking probably longer than 40 years. I will be worm food in 40 years. What else? Well, simply getting the spacecraft to the right place is a major challenge. Unlike a camera lens, the sun doesn't have a single focal point, but a focal line that starts around 50 billion miles away and extends into space infinitely from what I've read. The image of an exoplanet can be reimagined as a tube like a mile in diameter centered on that focal line and located 60 billion miles away in the vast emptiness of interstellar space. The telescope has to align itself perfectly within that tube so you can draw an imaginary line from the center of the telescope through the center of the sun to a region on the exoplanet. To image the exoplanet, the telescope moves within the tube taking a photo at each new position, and that represents a new view of the exoplanet's surface. Since each position corresponds to one pixel in the final image, the telescope has to point with extreme accuracy and maintain that accuracy for exposure times anywhere from a few minutes to hours. Good luck with accomplishing that with a camera hanging out in what is essentially interstellar space. And no, 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 ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't just end there. When the sun's gravity magnifies an object, it doesn't produce a coherent picture like a camera lens. Instead, you get a smeared image. It's around the edge of the sun in a halo called the Einstein ring. And that halo appears inside the sun's corona. Remember the sun's corona, that fiery outer atmosphere? And that just distorts the image and overwhelms it with lots of brightness, let's say. And each Einstein ring corresponds to one pixel in the final image and contains a mixture of reflected light from a small region of the exoplanet's surface and the rest of the planet. To capture the full image, the telescope has to pick out the faint signal from the Einstein ring against the overwhelming background noise of the sun's corona. It has to extract the signal, and then it has to de-blur that using computer algorithms to recover the relevant data. And to get a, an entire image, I mean, that process has to be done a million times. It has to be repeated over and over and over again, literally a million times. And, well, yes, we're still not done. Finally, there's the problem of what the heck is this guy going to focus on? Think about it. Given the amount of time and material resources that are going to be needed to make this happen, and we're talking lots of money here, 
we don't want to just take a photo of a cold, dead world that looks like, well, Pluto or Mars, for that matter. I mean, nobody wants to see another Mars. But of the thousands of exoplanets discovered to date, only a few have any properties that make them potentially habitable. And that means that these rocks, these planets, are rocky, about the size of the Earth, and they orbit their host star at a distance that allows for liquid water to exist on their surfaces. The technological constraints of the mission mean that the planet has to be located about 100 light years less, preferably, of our solar system if we want a high-quality photo. In the best-case scenario, the first photo will reveal signs of life, like vegetation. If we're really lucky and intelligent life exists, we might even detect large-scale infrastructures. But as I tell you from month to month on these updates, after years of searching, astronomers still have not found an exoplanet they believe has Earth-like properties. So Turashev's plans seem to be going nowhere quick. But he says his mission could launch as early as the 2030s if NASA gives him the green light. Given, let's say, a 25-year travel time with new, fast, high-tech engines and a few years to gather the data, that means we could conceivably have a high-resolution photo of an alien planet as early as the 2060s at just about the time when I'll be a hundred and, well, my kids will be about as old as I am. It would be about the most ambitious mission ever undertaken and the odds of success long. But it stands to revolutionize our understanding of the universe and our place in it, if, of course, it actually works. Next story. Albert Einstein in the news again? Let's stick with space, and another theory that Einstein had about a century ago. In 1915, Einstein realized that his newly formulated general theory of relativity explained a weird quirk in the orbit of Mercury. Now that same effect has been found in the star's orbit of the enormous black hole at the heart of our Milky Way. About two dozen astronomers from the Max Planck Institute reported this April 16th in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. The star, called S2, is part of a stellar entourage that surrounds the Milky Way's central black hole, and for decades researchers have tracked S2's elliptical motion around the black hole. The researchers previously had used observations of S2 to identify a different effect of general relativity the reddening of the star's light due to what's called a gravitational redshift. Now they've determined that the ellipse rotates over time in what's known as a Schwarzschild precession. A precession is a slow movement of the axis of a spinning body around another axis due to a torquing motion, like a gravitational influence, acting to change the direction of the first axis. That precession is the result of the warping of space-time caused by massive objects, according to general relativity. A similar precession in Mercury's orbit had again stumped scientists before Einstein came along. 
While physicists have never found a case where general relativity fails, they're searching for any cracks in the theory that could help lead to a new and improved theory of gravity. The new study confirms that Einstein's theory checks out again, even in the intense gravitational environment around a supermassive black hole. Hey, what are you guys going to learn? You got to trust old Al, huh? This is what all the people from Princeton sound like, by the way. Last story of the evening. Let's stick to the outer space theme because, well, at present, the Earth just kind of sucks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Pluto! Yes, Pluto finally getting the respect it deserves. Yay, Pluto. All right, not all the respect it deserves, but still. New analysis published this March of images from NASA's New Horizons spacecraft suggests that the dwarf planet has had an underground ocean since shortly after it formed four and a half billion years ago, and that the ocean may surround and interact with the rocky core. Researcher for the project, Dr. Carver Beerson of the University of California, Santa Cruz, says, quote, If this is true, oceans could be common at the solar system edge and may even be able to support life there. That possibly transforms the way we think about the Kuiper Belt, unquote. On its pass through the Kuiper Belt in 2015, New Horizons probe revealed that despite the dwarf planet's location, six billion kilometers from the sun, Pluto showed signs of hosting an ocean of liquid water beneath an icy shell. Pearson was supposed to present this data on new research related to Pluto at the canceled Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Woodlands, Texas. However, he has released much of what he was going to talk about. Beerson considered two possible histories for Pluto's potential ocean. If the dwarf planet had a cold start, quote-unquote, any subsurface water would first have been frozen before melting under heat from decaying radioactive elements in the dwarf planet's core, only to partially freeze again over time. In that scenario, Beerson expected to see cracks and ripples across Pluto's icy shell from the orb's contraction as the ice melted and then expansion as the water refroze. Contracting would make the ice crumple into mountain-like features, while expanding would stretch the ice and create faults. Beerson's second scenario envisioned a quote-unquote warm start for Pluto, where the ocean would have been liquid for nearly all of Pluto's 4.5 billion year existence. In that case, the surface would only show cracks from the sea expanding as it partially froze. And that's exactly what Beerson and colleagues found in New Horizons images from Pluto, suggesting that its liquid ocean is nearly as old as the dwarf planet itself. Beerson says, quote, That means Pluto did start off warm. Maybe it started with a liquid ocean really early on. This lays out one of the coolest hypotheses that a future Pluto mission could test. If Pluto could have an ocean and potentially be habitable, it's very likely that other bodies in the Kuiper Belt are also ocean worlds and also potentially habitable, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. Stay healthy, stay safe, keep watching the skies. I hope I've inspired some of you. Keep washing those hands until next time. This is Jim Campanella.
Always a pleasure, James, even in this time of strange times. Yes, this is science fiction, truly. Jim, thank you so much. Look after yourself, lad. So, like I say, we're coming in once a fortnight at the moment, and we're all a kind of pot. We will play, actually, which will be the end of the month. Well, we'll play Amy's, because I've got Amy's little section in there as well, so that's coming up next time. But listen, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, do support. We're kind of... Figures are crashing and burning, and it's just... Even though we're only kind of got two stories, we've still got a whole load of, like, debt <laughs> to look after. You know, like, weekly, monthly, all the kind of things are still going ahead. You've still got to pay for all the services. So, if you could, honestly, that would be fantastic. Until the next time, just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.